Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. Well, good morning, listeners. It's been quite a while since we've gotten any recording done, but we, we're getting some done today. I hope you guys enjoy it. So first, we'd like to talk about the protests going on in Iraq right now. We'll, we'll get to Iranian influence there in a little bit, but I wanted to give everybody kind of a clear picture of what's happening on the ground. The protests began around the beginning of October. Since then, there's been around 300 people killed and thousands more than that wounded. Um, it's important to remember that three-fifths of the Iraqi population survive on $6 or less a day, despite Iraq sitting on very, very large oil reserves. Um, the protesters are angry at the level of corruption and gridlock with the current Iraqi government, mass unemployment, and lack of basic services. Now that encompasses a whole lot of areas, but that's, that's the, the general sense of things. Um, most places only receive electric electricity intermittently, if at all, um, usually just a few hours a day. Millions lack access to adequate health care, education, and clean water, as much of the country's infrastructure is in tatters. Um, among the outright violence used by Iraqi security forces has been the use of these grenade launchers firing tear gas canisters directly at protesters. They're designed to be fired at an arc so the canisters will explode above the protesters, but instead they're just using them as direct fire weapons, and the wounds are really ghastly. Um, I've, I've linked uh, an article in the show notes from NBC News that they did a full breakdown of these particular weapons and the kind of damage it does. It's worth looking at, but fair warning, it's, it's graphic. Um, it's also worth noting that following Mike Pompeo's withdrawal of large numbers of American diplomatic personnel in Iraq from May of this year, the USAID mission in Iraq, which is supposed to manage over a billion dollars, in humanitarian and infrastructure projects had its staff cut by 80%. Now, a billion dollars is, uh, is a pittance to what Iraq truly needs for reconstruction, and USAID isn't the most virtuous organization in terms of American assistance to other countries, but clearly the ongoing cuts to the State Department by the Trump administration, and especially those related to humanitarian needs, isn't helping the situation. There's also a strong chance that these personnel cuts could become permanent under Trump. Danny, you want to mind taking us through the history and the bigger picture on these protests, please? Yeah, of course. Uh, I did a pretty thorough interview on this with Scott Horton about a week and a half ago. Um, and, and he brought me on to do this very same thing, which is to provide some context, which, um, which has a uh, geeky Middle East history and politics buff I sort of relish in. Um, what's really concerning about the current protests, um, well, it's manifold, of course, it's, it's the death. I don't wanna minimize the death and destruction 
that the security forces are, are, are waging against uh, largely extraordinarily peaceful across the board protesters. Um, but it also, it, it, it's, it seems to me like a repetition of history. Um, and, and history is never an exact repeat, okay? That's, that's lazy history, right? Good historians don't do that. But there are similarities, and, and they're worrisome. Um, let's back up for a moment and remember what happened after Americans troop, uh, American troops left in December 2011. Now, I was in favor of that withdrawal. I remain in favor of that withdrawal. I don't want any American troops in Iraq. I think it's a disaster that we're still there in our 16th year now uh, in, in Iraq. But upon the uh, departure of American troops, um, because America had sort of allowed a very corrupt process to occur in the wake of the 2010 elections, uh, in which Iran, which we're going to get into later, brokered a deal whereby the strongman Shia chauvinist uh, uh, Maliki stayed in power. Um, after that, Maliki basically, like, he went on a witch hunt against Sunnis within his own administration and prominent Sunnis within uh, the government, specifically the parliament. Now, in response throughout 2012 and 13, there were mass, mostly Sunni, but, but, but others too, mass protests, largely peaceful, um, widely peaceful against the regime. Um, Maliki's response, very similar to uh, Mahdi's response, uh, and we'll get to him in a second, the current prime minister, or he just resigned, but or he just said he's going to resign. Um, what followed was massive clampdowns and, and bodies shot down on the street, okay? And we're seeing that again. Uh, what was the result when the chickens, so to speak, came home to roost? Well, the result was that the Sunni population uh, forever, it seemed, turned its back on the Baghdad-based Shia majority government that the United States had left in place. And the, uh, the Sunni community, which had once recently at that point turned its back on the Al-Qaeda in Iraq types, now allied themselves with this burgeoning new Islamist movement that we may all have heard of. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of these guys. Uh, ISIS, I know they're kind of, uh, no one really knows about them, right? Um, of course, I'm being facetious. But ISIS largely feeds, right, on the dissatisfaction of the, the Sunni protesters. So, that, so that's that. So, so what am I concerned about? Well, I'm obviously concerned that some of these protesters might be willing today to fall back on another sort of insurgent organization. Now, what is different, and it must be said, about these protests is they're much more uh, intersectional, okay, uh, intersectarian. And, and it's not a Sunni rebellion any longer. Um, it is more, uh, as you very importantly uh, told us regarding the stats on electricity and um, the amount of people living on $6 or less a day, uh, this is more of a broad-based anti-corruption, anti-government, anti-systemic government protest. Now, that is good in the sense that it is less likely to morph into uh, ISIS 2.0, right? Uh, but it still could, okay? Uh, that or uh, various uh, separatist organizations, uh, potentially a fracture among the three major ethnic and sectarian groups. Um, look, these sorts of protests are easily overtaken and melded to the use of extremists. Now, where have we seen that before? Well, across the Middle East in the Arab Spring, right? So we are now in a post-Arab Spring world. And what we saw is that the only moderately successful uh, Arab Spring uprising was in Tunisia. And there's a lot of reasons why Tunisia 
had some success where everyone else failed. So it seems to me that when governments crack down on these sort of anti-corruption protests, right, anti-system of corruption protests, the outcome uh, has really had, there's been three major outcomes across the Middle East. Uh, call it the Egyptian model. Uh, the Egyptian model is when in the wake of the chaos that comes with these protests, a king or a military dictator takes charge, okay? Uh, and cracks down in a bloody, bloody way and then forms an authoritarian state. So that's model one. That's the Egyptian Saudi Bahrain model, right? Um, model uh, two is uh, the ISIS model, right? Um, which we saw in Iraq, to some extent in Syria, and uh, also to some extent in Libya, whereby these protests are later uh, out of frustration with their lack of success working within the system of peaceful protest is thereby channeled into Islamist jihadi extremism. That's model two. And of course, model three is outright civil war, which is the full Syrian model uh, and Libya to a certain extent. And it was also uh, true in Lebanon uh, in the 1970s. So pre-Arab Spring. This all concerns me. Uh, it doesn't mean I don't support the protesters. I, I, I do uh, support the protesters' demands. Um, but what I think is this, and, and I'll end on this so we can move on to another uh, aspect of this topic. What I think is this. Mahdi, right, the, uh, the prime minister, right, um, has indicated that he will step down. And I was listening to Democracy Now! and a, an Iraqi journalist slash observer in Baghdad, a, a local Iraqi, uh, had a very uh, important quip saying that that's not enough. It is not enough for one man to resign. That's not going to change the nature of these protests. These protests are going to go on and on because, as this astute observer said, uh, the, if the Iraqi government was a tractor trailer, it is driving towards the end of a cliff over which it is going to fall. And rather than stop the truck and turn the system around, they've only changed the driver. Okay, And so long as that is the case, I fear we may see one of the three models, the Egypt model, the ISIS model, or the Syria civil war model in our future. And that, of course, would be utterly disastrous, especially with uh, Iran right next door and all that that implies. Yeah, I, I think I'm leaning more towards the Syria outcome, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> just because of the, I mean, yes, there is broad-based uh, intersectarian support, like you said, but I mean, it's it doesn't take much for people for that to like uh, turn into something else, especially when there's extremist elements involved. <sighs> Danny, do you uh, do you think this any of this is going to have a impact on troop levels in Iraq going forward? You know, it might. Um... There have been recent reports in the Washington Post, which, of course, the Trump administration has roundly denied, but then also sort of gone back on that and hinted that maybe they're true, because in particular Trump fashion, he, he either he either he is completely confused about what he is going to do, uh, or he really enjoys confusing all of us as to his real intentions, or some combination of both mixed with just a sprinkle of mental illness. We don't know. Uh, <laughs> what we do know is that there are reports that uh, up to 14,000 American troops may be in, in, infused into uh, the Middle East as some sort of check, as always, against Iran, which is, of course, the perfect cudgel uh, for uh, getting more troops into the Middle East. Um, 
if that's true, of course, it obviates and, uh, you know, uh, is the inverse of all of Trump's uh, sometimes profound anti-war statements. But at this point, we're used to his hypocrisy. Um, mm -hmm. Where would those troops go? Well, if you want to check Iran, if that is the real goal, then those troops have to go to um, one of two places. Uh, the soldiers essentially have to go to Iraq and the uh, sailors need to essentially go to Bahrain, right, where the, the fifth fleet is southwest of Iran. So um, if I am a deep state insider, I've decided to just start using that phrase. I used to say I hate it, but fuck it. That's what everyone calls it. I'm going to call it. That. <laughs> if I if I am a deep state uh, uh, unelected official and I am whispering in Mr. Trump's ear that uh, despite his potential inclinations and instincts to the contrary, we might just need to be prepared for war with Iran. Um, I am going to be tempted, cynical monster inside the military industrial complex that I am, to use, right, to conveniently use the uprising or the protest or the chaos within the domestic body politic of Iraq as an excuse to infuse more American troops there. So even though the main reason wouldn't necessarily be to prop up the existing Baghdad-based government, even though the real motive would probably be to put more troops on the border with Iran and try to drum up some sort of Mexican-American war incident where we can uh, have a, a purpose for war, uh, I could definitely, if I'm a cynical monster, use what's going on in Iran to do, or Iraq to do this. And um, I wouldn't put it past any of them, and I wouldn't put it past Trump to give in or allow himself to be used by both his military-industrial deep state insiders, but also two other factors concern me, and, and I'll leave it on this, which I always say and I never do, but two more things um, about that. Uh, Trump is scary because, number one, in addition to his deep state insiders, he has the three Bs. BB Netanyahu, uh, MBZ in the United Arab Emirates, and MBS in Saudi Arabia, the three Bs are whispering in his ear from outside of Washington, right, from across the Atlantic, uh, saying, Iran, 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 you know. Um, and BB is a wounded animal, right, because of his corruption indictment. And Trump, this is my final point, Trump is a wounded and cornered animal because of impeachment or the threat of impeachment. Now, right. cornered animals behave badly. And this scares me intensely. So, so listen, and, and, you know, I mentioned the cornered animal thing uh, as an analogy, albeit a crude one, but I think it's important. Um, I said so on uh, television yesterday uh, on RT with Rick Sanchez, check it out. I talk about the three B's. I talk about the cornered animal syndrome, but you know, all of this happened in the wake, right? A few weeks back, which seems like ancient history in today's news cycle um, of the Iran leaks, right? The, the alleged Iranian intelligence leaks that were reported on in a joint fashion by the intercept and the lead. And then of course the New York times to give it some credibility because everyone knows the New York times would never lie. So, <laughs> um, uh, you know, this is, this is the nature of things. The Iran cables, as they're being called, uh, we should have called it Iran gate because I like when you just put gates at the end of everything. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like I've, I've been married and divorced twice and I'm going to start calling like my relationships divorce gate. And divorce <laughs> gate too. Um, I promise. But anyway, so Iran gate, the Iran cables uh, come out and they demonstrate what all of us 
insiders, right, uh, the, the highly intelligent three men that we are, as well as anybody else who has ever paid attention to the Iraq war, which means like no one except us uh, and like 14 other people, we all know something, which is that Iran won the Iraq war, right? The big winner, even though they weren't part of it initially, they won. And we knew that. The Iran cables demonstrate that in uh, devastating detail and also illustrate that, that the, the extent to which that was true has had long-term ramifications up to 2019, right? So 16 years later, Iranian influence, uh, which we immediately handed Iran a lot of influence when we toppled Saddam Hussein, uh, now it's kind of gone off the rails, right? Now it's, it's reached its, its logical conclusion. Although it, on the positive side, which is not a side I often report on, it must be said that a lot of Iraqis, even a lot of Iraqi Shia, uh, do have a form of Iraqi nationalism and, and, and are not happy with Iranian influence. And this is the, I'm talking even among the Shia, and, and, and thus the Iranian consulate in Najaf, right, the holy city of Najaf, uh, was burned, right, was burned down. Um, but that said, Iranian influence in Iraq is uh, undeniable, right? And if you believe, and I don't, but if you believe that Iran is the greatest existential regional threat to the United States, this should disturb you. Um, now, I don't think Iran is a totally great country. Uh, beheadings and hanging adulteresses from cranes is not my thing uh, any longer. I'm off that. I'm off that phase of my life. But no, I mean, I don't have a lot to say for the Islamic Republic uh, in many ways. However, I don't think it's the threat that it's made out to be. Israel has several hundred secret nuclear weapons. It's the worst kept secret in, uh, on planet Earth. But Iran has zero, right? And, and Iran is, for the most part, uh, abiding by the old deal. That said, it is important to understand the extent to which we handed a massive victory to Iran, which is what the cables say. Um, led by a president who knew more about the Texas Rangers farm system than the difference between the Sunni and Shia of Iraq, uh, we inevitably walked into a situation we didn't understand whatsoever. Um, even a basic knowledge of Iraq, or God forbid, taking a walk over to uh, the State Department and asking one of the very many Arabic-speaking uh, specialists who spent their lives studying Iraq would have informed said president and his uh, regime, uh, his cabal, uh, really, of uh, Cheney, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, that there were such things as Shia and Sunnis and Kurds, and oh, by the way, the Shia are the plurality uh, despite being marginalized for decades within Iraq. And so what that meant was that if there was an attempt to topple Saddam Hussein, who for all his ills, and they were many, uh, did provide a pretty good check, a containment of sorts against Iraq, if you were to topple the caged animal that was Hussein, who was very much under control, uh, if you decide to topple him, which of course was foolish, you will, if you attempt, as America loves to do, to impose a Jeffersonian-style democracy in Mesopotamia, uh, a basic understanding of majority rule would tell you that that government would be Shia-dominated. Exactly. Uh, not, not necessarily a bad thing if, if, if that's understood and controlled um, and ensure that there are minority protections for the Sunnis and the Kurds. But if you don't do that, which we didn't do a very good job, uh, that's what's going to happen. And, uh, and so when they said to Bush, uh, in uh, 2005, which, as we know, the you know 2006 
pres uh, congressional midterms were coming up. Um, I mean, they weren't really coming up, but as we know, American election cycles start like a decade before people are even born. They start running. But the, the, it was coming up, right? It was coming up. And so when they said to Bush, listen, the, the, the situation on the ground in Iraq is such that we can't really have the national uh, parliamentary elections now, because if we do, the Sunnis have already uh, let us know that they're going to boycott said elections unless they have a number of assurances of minority support. And Bush said, well, that's all well and good, but I'm less concerned with the efficacy of democracy than I am with Iraqis in August 2005 showing us their purple fingers so I can declare victory and the Republicans can hold on to the House and the Senate, which, uh, while politically astute, uh, demonstrated a complete lack of political courage, in which case he's in, of course, good company. But the point is, we foolishly decided to take a 40% democratic solution and impose a, uh, a Shia uh, majoritarian chauvinist regime uh, that had even more power than it ought to have demographically because the Sunnis had boycotted said election. So not only were the Shia taking power, but a specific subset of the Shia were taking power. And this is complicated, but important. The subset taking power was the most organized. Whenever there's a first election in any chaotic society, the most organized win or the most brutal, right? Uh, not necessarily the people with the most uh, grassroots support. Now, the Dawah party, which Maliki, strongman Maliki belonged to, and uh, the Islamic Council for Revolution in Iraq uh, used to be called uh, SCIRI, I don't even know, I think now it's ISKI, it doesn't matter, it's all the same people. Uh, these folks were the most organized, and so they were able to drum up a lot of support. But to most Iraqis, to many Iraqis, especially the Sunnis and the Kurds, but, but definitely even within some of the, the Shia, these guys were traitors, okay? Because during the bloodiest, longest uh, war of the second half of the 20th century, the Iran-Iraq War of 1980 to 1988, these Shia Islamist organizations actually fled the country during that war. And many of them, in the case of uh, SCIRI's uh, militia, the Badr Brigade, fought for Iran, okay? So they fought for their religious um, co religionists rather than their co-Arab right, identity. So they chose their religious identity and, and sided with the Persian Iranians. So there was a lot of lack of legitimacy. The only way these organizations could hold on to power, Dawa and their alliance with uh, ISCI or SCIRI was brutality. And thus, uh, after they lost the election in 2010, um, rather than allow uh, a more uh, secular Alawi to Yadalawi to form government because he actually had won the most seats though not a majority um the united states because obama wanted to claim victory and go home like he had promised um we, we allowed the iranians to step in and broker a settlement of course if iran brokers the settlement who's going to win well the iranian link dawa party um and all of this led back to what we talked about at the start of the show which is to the protest that ultimately uh, had their logical end state in Sunni support for ISIS. So while that might not be the exact path, and we shouldn't try to take the 2012 to 13 protests and lay them uh, inappropriately upon the 2019 protests, there are enough similarities to worry us. 
And so the point is when you talk about Iraq, you can't talk about Iraq as a vacuum with real borders, because after all, these borders were made up by Winston Churchill over cigars, whiskey, and a colored pencil in 1918. So we shouldn't take the borders too seriously. And what I mean is, when we talk about Iraqi politics, forget the vacuum, you also have to talk about Iranian politics. Uh, that lecture of mine is really just a truncated version of uh, what you can read in a, in a number of books um, on this subject, including my own. And, and, and I think, and there are better ones than mine, and, and I think this is really important and um, really scary because domestically Iraq might fall, uh, Gigan, as, as you mentioned, uh, to, the, um, to the Syria model, which I agree is probably the most likely. That's domestically. And then um, internationally, right, or, or in foreign affairs, the fear is that uh, the Iran-Iraq uh, border might fall into a chaotic uh, a chaotic zone that could resemble the Iran-Iraq war, except this time with American firepower on one side. And of course, that would destabilize the region even further. Um, and if you're into uh, apocalyptic Christian evangelical scenarios, um, <laughs> and you want Jesus to come back riding on a horse with a sword, then you should be rooting for all of this because it might just uh, pen the apocalypse. Um, but if you want your kids to celebrate Christmas, uh, in the next few years, then you ought to be scared like we are. Danny, did uh, reading about the intercept stuff as far as the the CIA defectors? Did you have any any thoughts about that? About how many how many agents that got trained by the CIA and then defected to Iran somehow? Yeah, one of the more alarming aspects of the report was that. Um, agents or assets, assets um, of the CIA in particular, local Iraqi assets who had, who had worked for a long time um, with the United States, informing on their uh, fellow people, informing on militias in particular. Um, when the United States left and didn't take them with them, because we're not really big on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, like ask my interpreter who, you know, it required like 19 letters for me writing to Senator, then Senator Hillary Clinton before he got a visa. And I'm not even sure that I had much to do with it. But anyway, you know, it took him like seven years. Uh, you know, we're not really good at that. And so what ended up happening was in the vacuum left by an American withdrawal, and do not take this to mean I don't think we should have withdrawn. I think we should have, but there are always consequences and we, and we must recognize them. Um, Iran stepped in, in many cases, and, and, and filled our shoes. Um, they're smarter than us, just like everybody in the world, uh, because they didn't send like fucking brigades worth of regular troops into Iraq because that would have caused an anti-Iranian uh, Arab nationalist insurgency. But what they did do was they sent in small units, intelligence agents, um, Revolutionary Guard Corps types, and, and they ended up flipping a lot of our former assets. And so the concern in the report was like, to what extent did these assets and agents um, have the ability, have the knowledge, have the secretive knowledge to um, give information to the Iranians on how the CIA operates. Um, this is the kind of stuff that scares the shit out of the CIA. I, on the other hand, was not particularly concerned because when bad things happen to the CIA, I find myself macabrely like cheering because <laughs> all of this was predictable. Like the CIA, they think really highly of themselves. 
They're like, we're so special that we have stars without names because we're fucking spooks. Look how awesome we are. And it's like, yeah, but also everything you've ever done in the history of your intelligence organization has backfired. Like everything. Like everything. Like, dude, in baseball, as long as you hit the ball where no one else is three out of a hundred times, three out of 10 times, you go to the fucking hall of fame. But the thing is, if I join the Yankees tomorrow, I would hit zero and they might not keep me on the roster when the playoffs came around, but that's the CIA's record. Okay. Um, To the extent that it's public knowledge. I mean, and and I'm not even exaggerating. I mean, when you (laughs) train and empower and use, because usually we just use people uh, yeah. at their own detriment. When you, when you create an informant network, an intelligence network in a place like Iraq, unless you're either going to take them all out of the country afterwards, or you're going to maintain an American imperial presence there indefinitely, this is what happens, right? It's what happened in Afghanistan. It's what happened in Guatemala. It's what happened in probably fucking Mongolia. I don't know. I'm sure we fucked that up somehow. I've never heard how exactly, but I bet we did. I mean, the point is the CIA is batting zero. They're batting zero. The difference, the CIA is so bad that they're the same as if my toddler hit for the fucking Detroit Tigers. They're zero. They're hitting zero. And so I'm not really particularly concerned. I, I doubt Iran is going to be able to use much of the, very much of the information that they received in any meaningful way. I also don't think Iran has it in for the United States in any sort of existential way. And um, I think the CIA overestimates how cool they are, how much information, you know, secretive information they have. I'm, I'm just not convinced that Iran's going to be able to do a whole lot with whatever they learned. Now, you know, the CIA is going to be on up in arms about this, and they're going to say, look, we told Obama – that he had to stay there forever, but, you know, his skin was black enough that he said we have to leave or something, whatever the racists over there think. And so, I, I mean, I'm obviously being very facetious today. I'm just kind of in a mood. But the point <laughs> is I don't think that this is as, as troubling as it ought to be. Uh, the, the takeaway, if there's a moral uh, to the story, to the extent that there are any morals left in the American historical story, uh, I think it is that the CIA should do less. Um, any, do you guys see Forgetting Sarah Marshall, that movie? Uh, yeah. It's one of my favorites. Um, it gets better every time I watch it. And so, of course, uh, you know, the main character is trying to forget his girlfriend. So he goes to Hawaii to, like, have a booze-filled fun time. And he decides I should probably try surfing. And Paul Rudd uh, plays this ridiculous, like, hippie, you know, cool guy surfer dude. And he's, like, trying to tell uh, the main character, like, you know, how to surf. And he keeps telling him, like, do less, do less, do less, do less. That's my message to the CIA. Just do less. That's the lesson of the Iraq War and the Iran cables, uh, at least as far as Danny thinks uh, at 1230 on a Friday. Well, I think it's interesting, like the agency, it, like you see the trajectory of like the agency working with the military, right? And like you see, we've seen the mission creep creep from the military side, but we've also seen it from the intelligence community. And now there's like, I, I mean, maybe this has always been the case, but it seems to me like in our post 9-11 world, the marriage of the intelligence community at large and the military is like, it's never been stronger. And so, and so, and like they're, they all, they have the same blind spots, I, I would say. So like in the military, you know, we see people 
when they make when they have an operation and then everyone gets so excited about it. But we do the same thing with the in the intelligence community that there is this big problem and then they come up with some minor solutions and they say, oh, look at all the good stuff that we did. You know, we did X, Y, and Z. But they're looking at it from these short-term, you know, immediate gratification goals of like, look at what, like how cool that was without thought to the greater consequences of the political and the, you know, just people of the region that they're working with. And it really is, it, that to me was like one of the most frustrating things about working in the community is that like I thought my job as an analyst is to like tell the truth. To be like, here's the information that's in front of me and I have to find out more information and then I have to, you know, produce a product that is like well-rounded and good. But that's not what everyone wants to hear all the time. You know, it's, it's like there is an agenda and it comes from the top down and we, like those of us who are working in it are just subject to its whims, right? Regardless of like how we feel about it or the information that is presented to us. If it doesn't fall in line with that narrative of, you know, what the military industrial complex wants, then it gets brushed aside. And so, like you said, Danny, all those CIA agents that could have told the administration, hey, like you might want to think about this. You might want to realize like there is a significant population that has been uh, undervalued and undermined for the last 40 fucking years. And like, we need to pay attention to that. And nobody did. So, and the, the shitty thing is like, no institution in our country is willing to accept blame or responsibility when they fuck up. And I don't know about you guys, but this has really been pissing me off lately. <laughs> Just seeing how, you know, no institution in our country is willing to be like, yeah, okay, we messed up. Like individual people may, you know, take the onus and be like, yes, you know, we fucked up. But that's one person. Like the institutions never say that. They never acknowledge their mistakes. And, you know, as we know from human behavior, if you're not willing to acknowledge your mistakes, you can never move on from them and you can never get back. Yeah, I mean, totally, dude, totally. And, and I've been like big on my like modest proposals, like my sarcastic modest proposals in my articles of late. And like, like I think that the CIA needs like retraining, um, like, like a private who like can't qualify at the range. So like he has to go through retraining, go back to the dime drills and shit all day. Um, <laughs> that's what we need to do. Like everyone shits on the State Department. Like no one likes the State Department. That's not sexy. Like reading right. cables and, and knowing stuff like knowing things isn't cool in America, right? Like you're not cool unless you like shop in lot in the head personally, right? That's why like nine people have taken credit for it. But <laughs> I mean, and they all go on Fox News because Fox loves But Ugh. like, I trust the State Department more than the CIA because I like geeks. You know what I mean? I like geeks. Yeah. Geeks know shit and geeks don't like put on fucking frat boy Ed Hardy shirts and fight in bars. I like geeks, okay? Just like I do. And so what I think we should do, my modest proposal, is everyone who works for the State Department right now, like whatever specialty they have in whatever country, they should go work for the CIA. They should become the CIA for 10 years, right? And what we do with the CIA guys, because they don't know anything, is we, we send them into the State Department where they spend 10 years just like reading cables and like learning about these cultures that they've been fucking up for like since 1947. And so like <laughs> we just switch roles for a while. 
And then we re-rotate 10 years from now and we've got like a nice, you know, we find like a middle ground and everyone wins. So that's my modest proposal for today. I like it. <laughs> yeah, there's always something that people like forget or like leave out, whether that's intentionally or unintentionally, but yeah, it, it can be frustrating. <sighs> okay, on to something that is good. Uh, we don't get to talk about, like you said earlier, we don't get to talk about good things that much. So uh, let's do that. <laughs> um, so talking about homelessness, there, it's like, it's a big structural problem in our country, right? It's not just one thing. It's like a lot of the biggest misconceptions that in my own work I have to help people get rid of is that like a lot of people, they see someone on the street and they see that person and they think, okay, that is what homelessness looks like. You know, it may be, it's usually a guy that's older, kind of dirty, um, dealing with, you know, maybe some substance abuse or some uh, mental health challenges, you know, and that's like, that's, but like that uh, stereotypical iceberg picture, uh, that part that we see is only the tip of the iceberg. Most of the people that are homeless are uh, living couch surfing or they're living in motels, you know, or they're not able to, um, it's not the, mostly those chronic people that you see out on the street who've been out there for a long time. That is a really small percentage of the population. And <clears throat> the main reason people are homeless in our country is because they can't afford to live where they live. Like that's it. And that's the number one cause, like far and away more than any other cause that is attributed to homelessness, it is because of affordability. So <clears throat> I was really fortunate to get to go to a big veteran housing conference in LA uh, from the 19th and the 20th. And it was put on by the VA and SSVF, which is Supportive Services for Veterans and Their Families, which is a transitional program. They basically, um, they'll help people with their rent and utilities for about six to nine months. And, um, then get you connected with like employment services and like or income, you know, anything that can help someone like get out of the position that they're in, basically. So <clears throat> there's been a lot of success with these rapid rehousing programs like SSVF. Um, but the the bigger piece I would say is the permanent uh, supportive programs like HUD Nash, which is a supported housing voucher that is combined with the HUD and the VA. That's why it's called HUD MASH. Um, and HUD MASH, honestly, so, well, first of all, this initiative started in 2010, right? When Obama was like, there's a problem, we need to fix it, and directing all these agencies to like end veteran homelessness. So <clears throat> what we've done since then, it's been pretty awesome. Honestly, it's uh, veteran homelessness by itself has decreased by around 60% nationally, which is pretty fucking awesome. Um, and uh, with HUD VASH specifically, they have housed over 750,000 veterans. So, I mean, that's pretty awesome. And there's still more. And, you know, we got like a good amount of vouchers last year because that was the one good thing I would say Trump did in his, any of his like budget stuff 
is been giving the VA, like specifically HUD Nash has gotten more money and more vouchers. So we've been able to house in the county I work in quite a bit of folks. Um, and uh, so the, the main way that we've been able to help people is like you have to identify the problem first, right? Like what is it, how many people, who are they and where they are? So what we've come up with is these things called by name lists where we have the minute that, you know, we do outreach and we go to where the camps are and we identify veterans. Um, and once we identify that they are veterans, <clears throat> we put them into this list and that each of this list has their name, their social, you know, um, their birthday and where they are and like generally who's been in contact with them. So we have a meeting every month and I know other veteran providers do this as well, but we have a meeting in my county with all of the veteran providers where we go through this list and we go through the people that we haven't seen or the new people and we say, okay, um, you know, who is this person? Who's talked to this person? And if nobody has, then we make an effort to go out and reach them. So that's the first part of the problem is identifying who they are, where they're at, and what kind of services they need. <clears throat> then, uh, and that's honestly been like the most effective way because the biggest problem with homelessness is if you can't find people, you can't get them services, right? So, and when you're dealing with veterans, especially older veterans who have been screwed over by the government a lot, it's kind of hard sometimes to do outreach because if they feel like you're part of the VA or part of the government, sometimes they can be a little mm -hmm. skeptical. Understandably so, but um, it's, it's just nice. Like we've been able to do a lot in this time period. And what was my other notes? So uh, another big thing is that the VA claims, like for service-connected disability, there is a, if you write on the service-connected claim that the person is homeless, then they usually get fast-tracked for their disability. So something, you know, for like any of us that can take, you know, 18 to 18 months to like 35 months, like mine took 34 months, uh, can be, can take anywhere from like, a month to four months. So it's so much faster because their need is greater, right? And that's been able to help people a lot as far as the income goes. Um, another big thing is that we have these things called COCs, which is the coordination of care meetings, where, or continuum of care, sorry, where we get all the providers of homelessness and supportive services together and we talk about the issues of the area, you know, what are things we're highlighting, what are new things that are happening, and it's just really good for networking and trying to make things work better. So when I was at this conference, uh, it was really awesome. Like there was a lot of great people and we worked a lot on um, just, there were so many different aspects about like compliance and then what's happening, what new things we're trying and something, that I'm really excited about that's happening across the country is they're doing this thing called a shallow subsidy where basically the idea is so like for normal subsidies like say section 8 voucher uh, or HUD bash it's 70% of someone of the rent of whatever someone has so 
if they if they have income, then they have to the person only has to pay thirty percent of their income. So that's good for the people who aren't making that much money. But the the problem is it can also be like disincentivizing for people to work more or to get more income because there's a cap, right? An income cap on what they have, uh, what they can make in order to qualify for the subsidy. So it's it's good that we're helping people, but then there there also can be that caveat of sometimes that's a, it's disincentivizing. So what the the idea is that HUD and the VA are trying to do now with this shallow subsidy is instead of 70%, let's say we do 30 to 35 or even 40% of the someone's rent. And do that for a couple of years. And it's, it's only for people who like really don't need a lot of case management. They're just people that need the help. Like they're basically okay. Like they're doing fine with their mental health and their physical health and they are, you know, able to pay their bills, but like something happens and they just keep coming up short. Right. Or it's just they their wages haven't gone up with the increases, with, which is honestly what's happening mostly in the country is that, you know, rents on average have gone up five to seven percent, whereas wages have only gone up two to three percent. So you're never going to be able to catch up in that kind of environment. So the idea is, especially in the places that are really cost burdened, like, you know, L.A., San Francisco, Seattle, Chicago, New York. Um, the idea is let's give people this smaller subsidy and it's just to like help them out with their rent and see what happens. And they ran a test pilot project in LA and also in DC. And it, it's, it, was, a, it was a really good success, honestly. Like the DC one, they gave everyone $7,200, which broke out to be about $600 a month. And they said, you know, here, you can spend this on your rent, and it, it didn't always have to be 600. Like if they wanted to spend more one month, they could. If they wanted to spend less, you know, they could do that as well. But once the 7,200 was out, then they wouldn't be able to get it again until the fiscal year started over again. But more like so many people, like 85% of the people in the program said that it was really, really helpful for them and that it allowed them to be able to, you know, take care of some debt, um, to like help take care of like some house, you know, home improvement projects or like some things that they needed to like help that they weren't able to pay for because they had to devote so much of their money to their rent. So giving people a better quality of life overall. And like, honestly, isn't that the goal? So um, I'm really excited about this. It's unfortunate because for me, because they're literally doing this in every metropolitan area on the West Coast, except for Portland. So I was kind of upset about that, but um, it's really good. It's gonna help people a lot because most people are homeless for one to three months. And it's because they, you know, something happened, they got hurt, there was an unexpected expense that came up. And for those people who are spending, you know, 50 to 70% of their rent uh, or their income on their rents, like you can't, you can't, make up for that. So the idea is like, let's help out those people that are on that bubble or are recently homeless or like about to be homeless. And let's do more of the prevention aspect instead of the, um, the reactive stuff that I feel like we do a lot in this work. 
So I was really excited about that. And I think it's going to be a really cool thing. So it's nice to see that we're trying to come up with these creative solutions while at the same time, it was really great because we had uh, some leadership from the VA and from HUD and from uh, the U.S. Interagency on the Council for Homelessness uh, people. And they were all saying, yes, we understand these are big structural problems. They brought out that map or that graphic that showed how much um, one person would need to make in order to afford a two bedroom in their apartment in the state they live in. And, you know, no minimum wage would ever do that. And then they also told, said something that was really sad, which was that nationally, the price for a one bedroom right now is about 870 something. Uh, and what like social security um, is like 771 for people that are just getting the social security income or social security disability. So just a regular person living on government assistance cannot live by themselves. And that's really fucked up. So it's nice to see that like they're acknowledging, yes, these are big problems and we need to build more, but building more takes a lot of time. That takes you know anywhere from two to five years to build something. Um, and we're just not building enough because uh, developers don't want to spend the money to build affordable housing units because it costs them so much more. So it's nice to see that like they're trying to come up with creative solutions. But overall, we've done a really great job attacking the veteran homeless problem. Um, and now we just need to export that model to the other populations, to elderly, to youth, to um, more disabled folks. Like we, we just don't have a lot of resources in those aspects. And you know, with my coworkers who don't work with veterans, they, they can get kind of like raw sometimes because you know we're getting all this money or we're getting these resources or we just built a new apartment building or it got built in our county and it was 26 units for veterans. And they're all like, oh yeah, that's cool. But like, what about the rest of us? You know, and so that's my big thing is like, let's export this model that has clearly worked so well. And let's get people to care about actually ending homelessness. It's so easy to care about veterans because politically, you know, it's a good win. Like everybody loves to quote unquote support veterans. So uh, it's easy to get people like excited about spending money there, but like, let's have that same kind of enthusiasm for the other homeless populations. So are you saying that homelessness and veterans homelessness is, is, is complicated? Is that what I'm getting <laughs> from this? No, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a great, it's, like, it's a great point. And I really like how you ended. I was actually going to bring up that point as I was listening, by the way, I lead a dark, sarcastic life, like <laughs> most of us who've seen the underside of the American military empire. But this is good news. And, mm -hmm. and there's caveats, and you brought them up, and they need to be addressed. But like, let's just like, all pause, like, let's just do one of these like, like big inhales, right? Like right before <laughs> our anxiety attacks, like we've been well trained, uh, probably all three of us. And um, <laughs> And accept that this is a big deal, right? It is. Small, small victories. Small victories is huge because um, they do feel rare. I like what you say about reaching out to other communities and using the veteran model. Um, 
uh, and allow me to be a little uh, optimistic and, and, and sunnier than my usual disposition, but for all its flaws, and they are many, you know, native genocide, you know, the military does have positives, okay? Um, and, and there have been positive models that came out of the military, like, so in other words, for all its many flaws, like, you know, torturing uh, the first few black cadets uh, at West Point, the military was ahead of most of the country and definitely the entire Southern traitorous Confederate half of the country. Yeah, I said it, they were traitors um, on things like race relations, right? And, and even on things like eventually, it took a while, gay uh, rights, okay? So sometimes the military model uh, is ahead. So like the military integrates officially in like 47 and by about 51, most units are, are, are integrated black white uh, officially. Or, or in practice, and you know, of course, blacks aren't even voting in the South for 15 more years. So sometimes the military model can prove that things work. Like if blacks and whites can share a foxhole, um, you know, in Korea, uh, maybe they can also go to school where there is no artillery usually falling on Little Rock High School, right? Um, to my knowledge, it has not yet been shelled by, the, you know, by the North Koreans. So. Um, but, but wait for it. History is not over. So I think that's important. You know, um, gay rights. I mean, even a lot of like Republican secretaries of defense, like think Gates, like eventually came and supported that. So sometimes the military is ahead. So like, why not take this veterans homelessness program and apply it to, you know, the other humans? Because, you know, if, it, if it's a veterans only solution, right? Because one of the only things that Democrats and Republicans can agree on is that like every veteran is better than everybody else. Um, they don't always follow through with that, but it's like a flawed model, isn't it? Because like it, 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 it goes against our humanists. I think the three of us have pretty strong humanist instincts, and I think it goes against that. Um, you know, the, it, look, I don't even like that we call them homeless. Like to steal from George Carlin in, like, in the 90s, because he was like always ahead of all of us on this. George Carlin was like, they're not fucking homeless. A home is like an abstract concept. They're houseless. What they need is houses, you know? And so, I mean, I think if we apply that model, like obviously to some extent we are with the veterans to, you know, the other uh, homeless people, uh, uh, I think a majority of whom, correct me if I'm wrong, are mentally ill, right, on some level, uh, or, or, or at least the well, chronically homeless are mentally yeah. ill. Yeah, chronically homeless people tend to be, yeah, they have higher percentages of disability and mental, or just mental health problems in general, but um, right. that's just because of the, the like, the traumatic experience of being out on the street for so long right right and like experience so we're talking like a causation correlation question yeah which i think is really important um you know my i worry about this stuff though like i worry about and you know you guys know i write about the draft a lot um for my sins um i write about the draft a lot uh and i I don't know how i feel about it actually i always argue in favor of the draft but like Secretly, I'm like skeptical of that as well. But, you know, I'm afraid of this overadulation of veterans only because, you know, what about everyone? And, and, exactly. and yes, we don't have a, well, we don't have a draft, but it becomes a backdoor draft in the sense that uh, in these times, as you astutely noted, of um, rent, right, like housing costs, and oh, by the way, college costs. Those are the two things, by the way. Those are the two um debits on your lifelong account that are way out of proportion to inflation right yeah. to 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 rising wages so uh, most of the homeless don't have a whole lot to 
worry about regarding college costs, although wait for it because eventually like the middle class because of college debt are going to like parents are going to have to go live under the bridge so their kid can go to Yale. That's going to happen. But um, I mean, those things like rent is not keeping up with inflation, right? It's not keeping up with wages. We know that. Um, and so I think it's important to look at this as like a macro problem. And like, if it's just, if it's just about veterans, then if I'm a young person who knows that, like, I don't have a lot of prospects in like a, a, a continually warming planet and a increasingly, you know, um, economically unequal America, like I, it, it's worth it to me for join the, to join the military and get that on just to get myself into the VA system so that. If if something atrocious ever happens to me someday, like a huge medical bill or mental illness or just losing my job because robots took it over, I mean, I, I'm almost forced to join the military at a young age to hedge my bets because if we're only taking care of veteran homeless, then, like, I need to do that, right? And so if, I, if my father works for Goldman Sachs, like, obviously, I won't go to the military, but if I'm anybody else, I might have to. So it becomes this backdoor military draft and um, economic draft, I should say, and, and, I, and I hate it, but... Yeah, we see that every time, right? We see that every time there's a depression or there's a, I mean, I was one of those kids that joined the military because of the recession. <laughs> and because I was like, crap, I want to go back to college, but I definitely can't pay for it. And, you know, this is like a good way for me to go do that. And there's so many people that always feel that way. And it's, it's unfortunate. And like you, we see right now, the army is using kids student loan debt as a way to like help recruit people, whether it's, you know, saying, oh, if you are in school or you finish school, like, hey, we've got this, you know, way to help you pay down your debt. Or it's just saying to kids that don't have it and are scared about going to college, it's just, hey, look, join the military. You'll get to go to school for free. And that's also pretty fucked up. Oh, I have a theory. Um, and I don't normally play the conspiracy game. Um, <laughs> like I'm more of an Occam's razor guy, but like there's this part of me that somewhat facetiously thinks that like military recruiting command, like the four star or the three star in charge of that or whatever they star him with uh, is like secretly in collusion with like the college chancellors and the student loan holding banks because <laughs> like it's such a, it's such a symbiotic relationship, right? Like if yeah. I'm, if I'm the recruiting command guy, I want to like talk to whatever hedge fund owns all our student debt, probably in China and, and says like, Hey, uh, can, if you keep rising these like way past inflation, then I can use that almost as extortion money to get them to throw their lives away in Afghanistan in year 20 of the war. I mean, it's beautiful, right? I mean, that's synergy, baby. That's synergy. They should teach that shit in business school, son, <laughs> you know? Oh, well, <laughs> okay, I think, I think I'm, I think I'm done. <laughs> yeah um, no but i just i'm glad that yeah sorry go ahead Henry. um i wanted to ask about the list that you mentioned um mm -hmm. what what does it take for someone to come off the list or do or do they ever come off of it is that they've their situation has improved enough yeah i mean once people um so Generally, like for my program, you know, I like my program is for chronically homeless uh, and disabled veterans. And like I've mentioned before, I love the fact that I don't have to follow the state or the VA definition of a veteran. I can take anybody who signed their name on the dotted line, regardless of how long. 
regardless of discharge status and regardless of you know whether they were guard or reserve. Which honestly, I fucking think the VA, the VA healthcare system should do the exact same thing. Um, oh shit, that reminds me. Another cool thing that's working its way through legislation. So speaking on that, um, you know, the VA healthcare definition of a veteran is you have to have active duty for, I believe it's two years. Um, if not, they've, uh, and for Oregon, the state definition of a veteran is at least 179 days of active duty and also no dishonorable discharges. Um, and for the VA, it's no dishonorables and no, um, if you have an OTH, like a other than honorable, you usually can't unless it's a general under honorable conditions. So I hate that stupid caveat because, so there's all these people that get left out in the lurch, right? Because they didn't get to do that. And I think that's really fucked up. So, but the idea is <clears throat> SSVF and GPD, which is a, another transitional um, assistance program for veterans, they changed their requirements a couple years ago um, to be, instead of the VA definition, they could take anybody that has two weeks of active duty time. And I really like that. That's, That's quite a really change. Great. Yeah. And so now there is legislation in the, in the Congress. I'm not sure exactly where it is, but there is legislation that is, that would change HUD bash their eligibility to meet SSVF and GPD requirements. So it would just be lessening the requirements for people like people's barrier to entry by a shit ton. And that would be awesome. And it makes sense because a lot of people, so like SSVF um, and HUD bash work together a lot because HUD bash, while they can pay for people's rent and part of the utilities, they can't do security deposits, you know, which are often more than the rent. And so that's always been like a really big problem because that's usually people's barrier to housing in the first place is the fact that you have to pay so much money up front, especially if you have bad credit or you have an eviction or you have something on your record that would like make landlords not want to rent to you, you have to pay more money up front. HUD Bash for the long time uh, has been using SSVF as kind of like a buoy for the people who qualify for HUD Bash. So the idea is like, we're, HUD Bash is already using SSVF a lot and a lot of people that come from GPD programs, because GPD is longer, it's like usually a year to two year program. Um, the idea is like, let's make the barriers to entry the same so that way we can help more folks, right? So I'm really glad that that's working its way through Congress and I, I hope it passes, but that was just another really awesome thing that I was excited about. So the thing with the fighting list, to get back to your answer, is um, generally when people are housed is when we take them off the list. Um, it's not like once they're off, they can't come back on. So like if somebody enters back into homelessness, you know, we'll make sure, because there's this big homeless management information system that everybody in the country uses. And so the idea is like, okay, if this person re-enters into homelessness, then we'll obviously put them back on the list. But if they're permanently housed, you know, then we'll take them off. So that's how we, we show the numbers decreasing. So yeah, it's, it's been pretty good. And honestly, like the, they, something that was cool is they were showing the rates of 
re-entry into homelessness. And it was really in the low, um, between I would say eight and 15% altogether over the last 10 years. So it's pretty awesome. Like once we get people housed and we get them connected to service services, like a vast, vast majority of the folks who are in the programs end up better off than when they start. So clearly it's fucking working and we just need to do it better and apply it to everybody. Sounds great. The guys and I love doing the podcast, being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us, but we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with somebody, anyone whom you think might be affected by it. Maybe a young person looking to join the military or parents advocating for one, uh, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military can create for minorities and also inflicts on minorities across the globe, and anyone else you think it might affect, please take a minute and share this with them. Now, our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and other crap I can't think of right now. So let's bring out these honorary producers, and they are Will Arends, Gage Counts, Fahim Shirazi, Henry Zamoda, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you very much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt. The great Bill Kropinski did an awesome job designing our first shirt, which you can find at shop.spreadshirt.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Check for promo codes before you order. And now, let's get back to the podcast. So, uh, final story, which, in retrospect, maybe we should have ended with the moderately positive news of that (laughs) homelessness, because instead I'm going to talk about bloodthirsty American war criminals and Trump's uh, veritable love affair with them. Um, So Trump this week, uh, for those of you who watched television in the 80s, decided to take a carnival cruise on the love boat with um, Chief Petty Officer uh, Edward Gallagher of uh, definitely murdered uh, prisoners despite being acquitted of it. And uh, definitely, I mean, I mean, he's like the OJ of war criminals, okay? Like, he, he totally killed that prisoner, okay? Like, I know I can't prove it, and I don't have to. And, like, the libel laws no longer apply. I mean, 
they call Tulsi, I mean, Hillary called Tulsi a war criminal and that's punishable. I mean, a, a, a traitor, which is punishable by death since she's in fucking uniform. So obviously libel's not a thing anymore. So I'm going to say it. Uh, Ed Gallagher, you definitely killed that prisoner. Okay, so Trump and Gallagher and a bunch of other uh, guys who no one cared to name very much in the articles, uh, alleged war criminals, uh, uh, accused war criminals who had not yet been to trial, all went for a ride on the love boat because Trump isn't really anti-war. He's anti-some war uh, if it's not profitable to him personally or to America financially. But he does appear to think that war should be hard, right? It should be tough. And he knows that because... Uh, he should have been given the Purple Heart, as he said, for his sexual exploits in the 70s. And uh, in his defense, that was a wild time. So he knows a lot about war. Um, the, the point here is that Trump pardoned uh, three, be right, uh, three war criminals, one of whom was convicted of the lesser crime of uh, posing with uh, the body of a dead um, a teenage ISIS prisoner. Right? So he was actually convicted of that. There was some confusion in the trial because, like, another guy took responsibility. But Gallagher is a monster from everything I've read. And, I mean, his jaw is very square. He's classically handsome. I'd still like to fight him. Um, let's keep that in mind. So, <laughs> but, I mean, in his, on, on a serious note, well, he looks like every Navy SEAL ever, right, by the way? Yes. I mean, I had, a, I, had, I, had a, I had an entire, like, large – SEAL team uh, living on my base in Afghanistan for like a month. Um, they were just like doing raids and stuff. And they were really good. I mean, they're really good at what they did. And, you know, they look good in their like, you know, ragged baseball hats rather than helmets, which looked really comfortable. And I was jealous. Right. <laughs> um, but like, you know, like I've met a lot of Green Berets and like in the public uh, mind, Green Berets are all like jacked, ripped, like all Americans. Not the case. A lot of them are just fat. I mean, they're great guys. I mean, but they don't always look the part. Some, some do and some don't. Navy SEALs actually all look like surfer dudes with, like, muscles. I mean, yeah. I don't know how they all have bleached blonde hair and square jaws, but they do. They do. It's the one stereotype you're allowed to be racist against because it's <laughs> always true. It's like the one-time stereotypes are okay, like, about Jews, but you can say it about SEALs, I promise, Okay. Um, all right, I, I, I joke. But the point is, Trump set a precedent, as all leaders do, right? Whether it's at the squad level, Henry knows about that, right? You guys know about that, or at the commander in chief level, right? You set precedents by your actions. Um, you set precedents by your words, but much more so by your deeds, right? Um, uh, deeds over words is pretty much a good mantra for life role. And leadership. By, like, that's just good leadership, right? Just doing what that, you say. Like basic definition, one would one could argue, okay, again, you're you're right that this is like the definition or a key part of the definition of leadership. But so but Trump likes to throw red meat to his base, you know? And so if his base at the rally is in Appalachian, Kentucky, you know what I mean? He's like literally gonna throw coal at them. You know what I mean? Like they like they were they behave badly as children before Christmas, you know because he gives the base what they want. And, and, if, and if his base, if he thinks his base uh, is like white Texans, he's going to throw a little bit of Mexicans or rapists red meat at them. But if he thinks his base is the rank and file of the military, which I think he misunderstands, by the way, um, he's going to throw them red meat in the way of pardoning accused war criminals, or in Galler's case, a minor convicted war criminal. 
What that does, however, I think is um, is three things, um, and I'll go from the least dangerous to the most dangerous. Um, first of all, in two of the three cases, he pardoned accused but not yet tried, okay, not yet stand before a jury of their peers tried accused war criminals. So what does that do? Well, it undermines the very careful, mostly well thought out process of the Uniform Code of Military Justice and the military law system. Okay. And 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 what what stands what makes the American military to some extent, to some extent, stand out is its adherence to at least the notion of having a process for trying its own, right? Policing its own ranks. Okay. And I would argue that we actually probably do it better than NYPD. Okay. So oh, definitely. while we're flawed, yeah, while we're flawed, I mean, Daniel Pantaleo would have lost his commission um, within weeks if he was an officer in the United States Army rather than a police officer, right? For, ch for choking Eric Garner to death. Um, mm -hmm. But the military does this imperfectly, and I'm going to get into a historic scenario at the end of my little rant. But that's the first problem. He, he undercut the military system, and that's problematic, right? It can be. Um, because it's a careful system, even if it's not perfect. Uh, the second thing is he, that he did, potentially, is undermine good order and discipline. And um, as the three of us have served in the military, we know that good order and discipline is one of the favorite uh, platitudes of the military. Um, <laughs> everything that you do as a leader is to enforce or um, uh, encourage good order and discipline in the ranks. Right. And, and I like to make fun of terms like that because I, I'm fascinated by picking apart language and the etymology of words. But that, but but overall, cynicism aside, good order and discipline is important. If if for no other reason that the basic blocking and tackling required to storm and seize a machine gun nest requires a lot of good order and discipline. Right. We, we all agree on that, I think. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, at the simplest level. So there is a there is a there is a, sp a space where that matters. Well, when you preemptively, in the case of two of these three guys, pardon them before all the evidence was heard by a court of law and a jury of their peers, the message to the next kill team, right? You know, there's like a Netflix special or an Amazon Prime special about that whole story. The mm -hmm. message to the next kill team or to the next Gallagher, let me pose with a dead teenager Facebook guy is that there are no consequences, potentially, um, at least so long as Mr. Trump is in office. Um, good order and discipline could break down in some units. Now, I actually trust, don't faint, guys, don't faint. <laughs> I actually trust our generals and our colonels and our captains and our sergeants to do a better job than Trump. So I'm worried about the breakdown of good order and discipline. I think they are, that could be a ramification, but I'm a little bit hopeful that the many years and case, in many cases, decades of training of some of these officers and non-commissioned officers will hold most soldiers and units in line. Right? I, I think that's true. Do you guys think that's mostly true? Yeah. Most, well, for the most it's part, it's been interesting because I'm reading um, I'm reading uh, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Grossman's book on killing, and it's a fascinating read if you guys haven't read it. Um, and it's basically talking about what it takes to kill somebody and also who the killers are 
in the military. And there was a big guy in the 40s, SLA Marshall, that did a big um, study in the middle of the war, like right at, he would go to servicemen right after conflicts and say, you know, did you fire your weapon? And if you didn't, like, what did you do? Um, and he found, you know, that 80 to 85% of the people in the military were non-firers. That didn't mean they do, didn't do anything. They, you know, would run messages. They would help their friends. They would get ammo. Like, they would do everything else. But most people weren't actually firing at the people. This is for people when they were, like, in face-to-face -face combat situations. But it was interesting because he mentions, like, the people who are the firers. And... Uh, what he found out, you know, or what these studies have found out, a couple people have done them over the decades, but basically, you know, there's always 2% of the population that is more okay with killing people. That also correlates with society, right? We have, there are people who are classified as sociopaths, and that is usually about 2% of the population. What they find in the military is that most of that 2% are people in the special forces community. So to, like that was interesting to me when I was reading that and then in conjunction with all of this war criminal stuff because I'm like, okay, so you have people who might be predisposed to violence more in these units, in these specialized units. Um, and whether that's by like, you know, their own uh, predisposition or because of the fact of what they do, um, you know, that's, that's up for debate. But like, so clearly that's a part of it, right? And as you mentioned, the kill team and Eddie Gallagher and other people like more, it tends to be like special forces people. So I thought that was interesting. So like that compounded with the fact that you are setting a precedent for other people who, who would look at this and be like, okay, well, you know, if they can get away with it, then so can I. And that's, that's pretty scary to me. Yeah, a hundred percent. I don't have any like empirical evidence for this, although I have a hunch, and sometimes our hunches are right. Um, although I think that's a bad way to run the country, Donald, <laughs> if you're listening. But um, if two percent of society is sociopaths, I do think that the military probably overrepresents them, and the special forces community obviously overrepresents that. So the numbers can get a little scary. And I agree with you that you know. Look, there's a major breakdown in good order and discipline across the special forces right now. I mean, this is a scandal. I mean, you can read about it in the Military Times, right? You don't even have to go to, like, Seymour Hersh anymore. You know what I mean? This is, like, mainstream reported, I mean, to some extent, that there's, like, a crisis, particularly in the Navy SEALs, but, but across the special, for, special ops community, there's been a lot of high, um, high visibility incidents, right? Like, the, you know, they choked to death that guy in Africa, all this stuff. Um, so it is worrisome. And so my hope that most units will maintain their discipline because of the quality officer and NCO leadership uh, does not mean that I'm not concerned because, like you said, those people who are predisposed to violence, the 2% or the 1% or whatever they are, you know, they're going to look at the commander in chief. And so if some like first lieutenant or some staff sergeant is like, no, 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 like we're going to follow the rules of law, like we're going to be good order and discipline. I mean, why wouldn't some young soldier or some young sergeant in the case of the SF say, like, no, F you, like, I don't care what you say, you're just the first lieutenant, you're just the captain, you're just a sergeant, like, the goddamn president of the States will probably pardon me before I even face charges. I mean, which brings me to my third point, and, and I think it relates to the second, but it's, it's most concerning, is that precedent setting on war crimes 
and uh, atrocities like Trump has done um, has long-term ramifications for the safety of our service members overseas and for the safeties of civilians in America, like riding the subway in New York. Um, and, and what I mean by that, and for this, I do have empirical evidence that's only a Google away, some of the studies of which have been done within the military themselves, itself, that incidents like the abuse at Abu Ghraib, for example, um, have been shown through massive polling and studies done in places like Iraq uh, and across the Middle East to have an inflamed anti-American sentiment and helped to fill the ranks of so-called terrorist or insurgent organizations. And so in my article on this subject, for Truth Dig, titled Trump Will Never Live Down or America Will Never Live Down Trump's War Crime Pardons, I call him a terrorist recruiting sergeant because, in a sense, he is. He's not the mm -hmm. first, right? The CIA waterboarders and the Trump and the, and the Bush, you know, John Yu memo writers who uh, sanctioned it and Obama thrown Terror Tuesday meetings. I mean, all these things have inflamed and acted as like terrorist recruiting agents. Trump's just the latest in a long line. This is really dangerous. I mean, these things do have blowback, just like botched CIA operations, you know? We can't possibly kill as many, like we couldn't kill as many, quote, terrorists in Iraq as we created through our stupid actions at Abu Ghraib, right? Like, like silly old Lindy England with her, you know, dog collar on an Iraqi uh, probably created more insurgents, you know, than she could have ever imagined. Now, I don't think that she should be the scapegoat for the whole thing. I, I happen to think that the entire chain of command should have been relieved all the way up to the Secretary of Defense, or at least up to Sanchez, because his emails uh, have shown that he knew to some extent what was going on and was part of the cover-up. But, yeah. but this is important. I mean, this is really scary stuff. I mean, if the point is to keep American soldiers safe and uh, overseas, and if the point is to keep American people safe here at home, then we should be doing as little as possible to uh, enforce the narrative that the Al-Qaeda types and the ISIS types have crafted. But through these pardons, what we're doing is we are emphasizing their narrative, we are proving their narrative correct on some level, or parts of their narrative. And that is scary, and it does make him a recruiting sergeant of sorts. And, and I think, symbolically, a lot of Americans don't realize that the reason ISIS always put its Western beheading victims in those orange jumpsuits prior to lopping off their heads was because it was a symbol that was supposed to be demonstrative of the fact that America used those same orange jumpsuits to clad the Guantanamo Bay prisoners. And so that doesn't obviate the responsibility or excuse the actions of the beheaders. I'm, not, I'm also not really pro-beheading. Um, believe it or not, but it does tell us something, and, and that concerns me. But my final point on this before I turn it over to you guys is Trump is not the anomaly necessarily that we all want him to be, um, and this is where I get myself in trouble. This is where I get my more recent hate mail from the MSNBC Democrats uh, that tell me I'm a Trump apologist. <laughs> I'm not. Um, I literally hate the guy, like hate him, like when Nancy Pelosi was like asked by that reporter the other day, like, do you hate the president? She got so mad. She was like, no, yeah. I don't hate anyone. My parents were so lovely that they taught me that I shan't 
hates anyone. Fuck you, Nancy. You hate him. You hate him. Say it. You hate him just like you hate people who listen to John Mayer too much. It's okay. It's okay to admit that people who think Radiohead is that cool, it's okay to hate them, okay? <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know, I, I don't like this guy, but it is dangerous to say he's an anomaly because the implication, I mean, in some ways he is, but in a lot of ways he's not. And if we, it, it, it may cool our consciences. It may um, soothe our sadness to believe that he's an anomaly, and as soon as old Uncle Joe Biden gets in, all will go back to normal. That's dangerous thinking, because mm-hmm. what it avoids is the necessary revolutionary structural overturning that we need. Um, and so my point on this is, Trump is only the the latest executive in a long line of commanders in chief who have either pardoned, excused, or essentially non-punished um, perpetrators of very serious war crimes. And I just want to tell one story that demonstrates. Um, how true this is. In 1901, I believe, um, at a small village on the coast of the island of Samar in the central Philippines, um, three years into the American illegal uh, occupation uh, and suppression of said Philippine islands, which eventually killed up to 500,000 Filipinos, mostly civilians, um, the villagers uh, rose up against I believe it was a 55-man company, maybe, of American infantrymen. And uh, they ambushed them and surprised them just after breakfast. Um, and they killed more than half of them, mostly with machetes, in a very brutal uh, incident that was referred to as the Balangiga Massacre. And um, this was, at the time, big news. Um, and it was compared, uh, although the scales were different, it was compared at the time to Custer's Last Stand and the Alamo. Um, because it was Ugh. a pretty one-sided battle. In response, there, of course, had to be a punitive expedition against the entire island. And uh, uh, Jacob Ro- Roaring Jake Smith, a brigadier general, or maybe he was a major general, uh, was given the task by Adna Chaffee, who later became a major uh, general in the U.S. Army, maybe chief of staff, and definitely one of the forerunners of armored warfare, uh, his boss, Adna Chaffee, put him in charge and said, pacify the island, do what you got to do. Very vague orders. Uh, uh, Roaring Jake Smith uh, was a monster, and so he called in his subordinate, his key subordinate, who was going to be the executor at the tactical level, this major, and he said, I want you to turn Samar into a howling wilderness, which is how Jake Smith got his new nickname, actually, after the war of uh, Jake Howling Wilderness Smith. Uh, And he said, I want you to treat everyone as enemy, every male uh, on the island as enemy until they prove otherwise. Um, And uh, I want no prisoners. The more you kill and slaughter, these are the exact quotes, the more you shall please me. And uh, the major said to Jake Smith, he said, well, what age? Because you don't want prisoners, but what's the cutoff age of when I should shoot people dead, right? Even if they're unarmed. And, 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 And Howling Wilderness Smith, true to form said 10 years of age and the major was confused and a little distraught and asked for clarification and said so you want you know he said it again you really want me to kill everyone 10 years of age and older that I find and Smith said yes 
And so Samar is turned into a howling wilderness. It is, it is pacified pretty much almost forever. I mean, they, they, they really wiped this place out. Um, and that would have all been fine and good, except the press happened to get a hold of it. The darn media, you know? And there was a pretty big anti-imperialist movement in the United States at the time. And the anti-imperialist press, we don't have that anymore, by the way. We don't have an anti-imperialist press anymore. I mean, we do, but it's on the internet and everyone says they're just like Russian bots. But, the, you know, the mainstream press back then, there was actually an anti-imperialist wing to it, about half the media. So this gets in the newspapers and now they're scared, right? So Chaffee, the boss, is scared because he's like, oh shit, like my orders to him were pretty vague and I did tell him to be pretty brutal. So this might come back on me and then I'll never be general of the army. And then Theodore Roosevelt and his Secretary of Defense, um, uh, uh, who I'll think of in a second, um, oh, Root, Root was his name. Um, so Elijah Root, the SecDef, and uh, President Theodore Roosevelt, who never gets remembered for this, by the way, although he ought to, in part, they were like, oh, shit, like, we need a scapegoat. Like, we all were kind of complicit in this. But nobody was a better villain than Howling Wilderness Smith because he really was the one who said kill everyone on this tent, over 10. Um, so he was a perfect scapegoat. Um, but they don't, you know, Americans, we don't like punishing generals. They don't like punishing any military man, but definitely not generals. I mean, the rank and file will throw you a Lindy England once in a while, you know? We'll throw you that kill team sergeant from Kandahar once in a while. I mean, we, we don't send officers to jail, are you crazy? No. So Chaffee goes to Smith and he's like, dude, you're going to have to take the fall for this one. But here's what you do, you know, just say that you didn't mean your orders to be taken literally, and then we'll just like, we'll just like make it go away, but you're probably not going to get promoted again. And Smith, being the, you know, mo the perfect cartoon monster that he was, was like, no way, I'm going to trial. So Chaffee and Roosevelt are like, fuck it, we got to take this dude to trial, they put him on trial. And he tries to defend himself like goddamn Jack Nicholson and a few good men. He's like, you can't <laughs> handle the truth. We live in a world that has walls and sometimes you got to kill everyone over 10. You know what I mean? That whole thing. Right. Mm. And, and he, and he goes for it, right. He defends his own record and he's convicted. Now the question is, what should his punishment be? Now the judge is supposed to come up with that, but everyone knows that shit's political in the UCMJ. So Root and Chaffee get together, the SecDef and the commander of the whole Philippines get together and they say, here's what we'll do. We'll give him a light sentence. We'll, we'll uphold the conviction. We'll retire him with full benefits. And we'll give him, wait for it, tens of thousands of people died now, wait for it, a verbal admonishment. Verbal <laughs> admonishment. The same, thing you, the same thing you get the first time you're late to formation. Okay? <laughs> um, and Roosevelt signed off on it. Roosevelt, that wonderful president, right, that everyone worships today, signed off on it. And what's my point? Well, beyond the fact that I like the sound of my own voice and my ability to uh, simplify yarns from history into digestible material. I think this shows us that Trump's war crimes pardons are systemically dangerous rather than individually or anomalously dangerous. So while Trump deserves to be held accountable for these, I think, rather abhorrent uh, war crimes pardons, the real enemy is America's unwillingness to engage with its own complicity in war crimes, be they committed by general officers in the army or drone warriors or whomever. This is something we have to grapple with systemically and not to sound all Bernie revolutionary type, but it's not enough to change the driver. 
just like it wasn't enough early in the show. Talk about coming full circle, guys, huh? You almost would have thought I planned it. For Mahdi <laughs> to resign, for Mahdi to resign in Iraq is not good enough because that's just changing the driver of the truck that's going over the cliff. And I would argue that in many ways, Trump and his relationship with war criminals in that love boat of theirs, um, while it's important to note that Trump is uniquely um, obvious about it or frank about it, um, this is a systemic problem with long roots in American history that needs to be engaged with accordingly. We just don't want to acknowledge the fact that we are, we act like an empire. You know, like Americans don't want to acknowledge the fact that like, we don't just have these 800 bases around the world for like, to protect freedom and democracy. Like we have them to accomplish specific national strategic goals, just like any fucking country has done over the history of humanity. And we're the superpower, which means we get to exercise our force on other people. And we do so. And it's just, I don't understand how almost 20 years after 9-11, we can continue to say that we can continue to like not believe that like that, that, that we are an empire. Like everything that we've done over the last 18 years has been nothing but like so detrimental to the people in the region. And it's just, I don't understand how people can sit there and like not realize that we are just as bad as like any other empire that has happened in the history of humanity. Like, yes, we have certain checks on our power, but th this is what pisses me off about the democratic election. Like how many in times in these debates has there even been a single foreign policy question, you know, or like, is anybody acknowledging like, and I don't like a lot of things that Tulsi Gabbard says, but like, she's always harboring on this point. So I give her props for that because she's willing to actually acknowledge that. But it's unfortunate that it's only one person who isn't even a front runner who's actually willing to call this shit out. And that's what scares me about like the new election. It's like, so if Trump doesn't get elected and you know, say that we go through that process, like you said, Danny, of, oh, we get the guy out and then everybody's like, cool, everything's gonna be fine. You know, that's not going to be the case unless we have people who are willing to call out that the specific structural problems that have put us in this space. And it's, I don't know, we need, like you said, we, we need more people to just pay attention to what's going on in the name of American people. And it's, I don't understand how people just can turn it off and not care about it. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Tulsi because I can't prove this because it's, it's hard to know what someone will do and how they'll change after they get the Oval Office lobotomy uh, post-election. But <laughs> I do like to think that Tulsi would actually um, be more nuanced on this issue and more willing to punish accused or at least convicted war criminals than, than Field Marshal Bonespurs because um, she knows about good order and discipline. She knows about precedent setting and, and, and how that involves leadership, right? She's an officer and she served at a number of different ranks. I mean, I'd like to believe that paradoxically, the, the military veteran in the Oval Office would be actually more likely to let the system run its course before even considering a pardon um, because she understands the importance of that, uh, not only within the ranks 
discipline-wise, but also externally in terms of serving as terrorist recruitment models. So, you know, I think that there is a value in some ways of having a Tulsi make these sorts of decisions. Now, again, I can't prove that she wouldn't turn her back on that if she thought it was politically, um, you know, valuable, but I would like to think she would. I had noticed that Trump has made multiple references to Bo Bergdahl and Chelsea Manning in the process of, of handling these pardons. Quote, our great war fighters must be allowed to fight. I wouldn't have done this for Sergeant Bergdahl or Chelsea Manning. And to me, this goes, you know, right to his continual obsession with Barack Obama and what he did in office, believing that these pardons, Bert, well, not, well, Bergdahl didn't get a pardon, but Manning got, got communed, that it was spitting in the face of real troops. Um, and and I, I think this, some of it is his competitive nature, but I honestly think that he's trying to work out his real bigoted version of justice for himself, similar to putting an ad for the Central Park Five. That, that only he sees this and that, it, that he has to do something about it. But I, I wanted to make a, a point about one of the, specifically one of the recent uh, war criminal pardons, and that was a, a fellow named First Lieutenant Clint Lawrence. And his crime that he was, was accused of was that he was on a patrol, like his, one of his very first patrols in Afghanistan, and some gentlemen approached on a motorbike and he ordered his troops to fire, and they tried to inform their lieutenant that the, they had shown no ill will. You know, our, our rules of engagement would, would not apply in this. These are guys driving down the street, essentially. Why would we do anything? And the lieutenant, in his fear, kept screaming at his subordinates to fire. Um, one, one of them, one of the gunners spoke to his squad leader, his sergeant right there, who told him not to fire tried to explain it to the lieutenant. It still didn't happen. And then eventually one of, I don't know how many actually fired at the guys, but eventually they gave in. In talking about how we're uprooting the system, that I can guarantee you that those subordinates that watched all this happen and then have watched their fearful lieutenant, which everybody gets afraid in combat. It's nothing to be ashamed of or, or, not, or not discuss but it can't be worked out by killing people um that they're going to lose faith in this entire in this entire idea and the entire idea that that the military justice system has uh any kind of honor or distinction in actually disciplining those who 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 are flat out wrong in what they decide um i remember one day my lt freaked out on a on a patrol um and we were we were i think it was because we were transporting a detainee and the detainee was he was zip tied and he had a had a, a thing of a goggles over his eyes so he couldn't see anything but it really made him fearful and we blew out a tire and we had to stop for 30 minutes or however long it took us to change the tire and he didn't tell us to do anything you know immoral but you could see how palpable his fear was and that in the wrong hands that could become a really fucked up situation. And that's what I see out of that. And it, it's, it's no different than police officers saying that their fear was, you know, that, that, it, that being the requirement to be able to fire on someone, you know, it's not about rules of engagement, which Danny, you and I both know, you know, that we preached it to our soldiers over and over again, you know, positive ID. Do you see a weapon? Where are their hands? You know, and, and, 
Um, and like you, you joked about earlier, but it's absolutely fucking true that the military has, uh, I, I would think, a much better demeanor in that way of how they use force versus like the NYPD or Chicago PD, maybe. Um, but it, it just, it, I lost my point at the end there, but I, I just wanted to talk about that a little bit. Well, one of the things I meant to say, Henry, and think, I'm thankful that you brought it up um, in, the, in the Clint Lawrence case. Um, in two out of three of Trump's pardons, I believe, definitely in the Gallagher case, and I believe in one of the others, um, the accused's um, own squad and teammates were the ones who turned him mm-hmm. in. So this idea, and Trump ignores that, right, because he's playing to the crowd. Trump has a very cartoonish image of many sectors of society. Like what I mean is when Trump sees soldiers, I mean, he sees like G.I. Joe guys. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's very cartoonish. It's, it's, it's like a, a facile, right, rather than a nuanced, complex, non-monolithic entity that is the U.S. military, right? And so in his, in his baby brain, he says, um, well, if I pardon – soldiers that are accused of killing Arabs or Afghans, then the soldiers will love me because they too sometimes have to kill Arabs and Afghans. Like, you know, as simplistic as that is, I think that's how his brain actually works. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, that's becoming increasingly (laughs) clear. Um, Mm -hmm. And so he ignores this like salient fact in the cases that their own people turn them in their own people. Like in the Lawrence case that you mentioned, were, 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 were horrified by Gallagher. They called him a sociopath, like in their texts and stuff. They worried about him. Um, they didn't want to serve under the guy. And, like, I think this is extraordinarily important because it, it shows that we're more than a cartoon version of Soldier. We're more than, you know, any stereotype. And, and, and we must uh, take seriously the accusations of victims um, whether they are foreigners or whether they are observers within the military, whistleblowers of sorts. And that's a real whistleblower. You know, like, that takes courage, man. You know mm-hmm. that. They talk about the blue wall of silence and the NYPD, which is a real thing, right? Never rat, right? Never rat on your people, um, on your brothers and sisters. Well, shit, the military invented that, right? We definitely have. <laughs> Maybe we, didn't, we, didn't, we may not have invented it, but we have a code of silence, right? I mean, you don't narc on people, right? And special ops the whole is idea doubly of, like, so. It still happens, but, right, yeah. generally the idea is, like, you're not supposed to do that. Um, so it takes courage to, uh, to accuse or turn in a, a squad mate or a teammate, especially if that person outranks you. And, and, and I think we should take the, you know, just like in Me Too, I think we should take the accusations and the statements of uh, not only the victims, but also of the observers quite seriously. That doesn't mean we should take away due process. It doesn't mean they're immediately guilty. It just means let's let the system run its course, see the facts for what they are, and, uh, and not use three accused war criminals as political pawns, which is exactly what he has done. And he's shown time and again that that's what he thinks the military is. You know, the veteran community, the, the, the active military community, the special ops community, the guys who killed Baghdadi, the goddamn fucking dog that chased him into the tunnel, were all political pawns. 
um, for this president. And, and we've always been political pawns for most presidents, but it used to be more in the shadows. And what's refreshing um, in a dark uh, way about Trump is that he exposes the empire and he, and he, and he exposes the rank political posturing and uh, pawnifying, I think I made that word up, of the military. And this is a really important point, and I'm glad you brought it up, Henry. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Like, he's pulling back the curtain on a lot of stuff that I think some of us knew, but, like, people, like, could explain away. as Like, there was a lot of cover for people, but, like, because he just comes out and says this shit, because he doesn't know how to say, he doesn't know how to be sly, <laughs> he, it's kind of refreshing. It's like, well, like, okay, it's stupid that they're doing this, but, like, he's giving the real reason. And if that should if that should make people pissed off, and I, if that if it doesn't, then I don't know. They're not listening. The the thing I'm waiting for is he mentioned about that he wants these freshly pardoned war criminals to go out and campaign for him um, <laughs> in the in the campaign next year. And as as I I think it's hilarious too. But the thing is, it's going to have the opposite effect. They're going to be, I mean, most veterans wouldn't, probably wouldn't say it out loud if they're Trump supporters, but most guys wouldn't be okay with this. They, and especially that the guy now gets paraded around and celebrated and gives talks in favor of Trump. It, that will have, it, it, I don't know about Trump's, you know, for as far as veteran popularity goes, but that will have somewhat of an opposite effect when that finally comes around. But of course it's, it's hilarious that immediately, you know, he's the, he's the quid pro quo man. I did something for you. Now you're going to go campaign for me. I mean, I, I, you're saying that you're waiting for that almost in, in, in almost in a joking way, maybe, but yeah. it, it might happen. <laughs> it might happen. Like, dude, I was, I'm somehow, somehow, I'm still able to remember the fog, that the deep fog that was the 2016 election campaign. Somehow I can still remember some of it, even though they tried to like men in black us with that pen, right up to Trump. <laughs> <the president. laughs> I can still remember it. I must have been looking. I think I was looking away, right? And so they brought the Benghazi families and veterans to the Republican National Convention to campaign for Trump against Hillary. Why wouldn't they bring Eddie Gallagher to the next convention or to his home state? The dude owes Trump, quid pro quo, again, right? He's the transactional president. But I don't even have to know the guy. I could read it on his face that, like, make America great again is, like, implanted in his, like, lower cerebral cortex. Like, the guy is a perfect Trump-like supporter, perfect Trump like you know stump speech guy i would not be surprised would not be surprised for a second that's where we're at because we're at a place in america and it's not a republican problem i mean they invented the like a lot of this like they started it i mean it's a hard chicken and egg problem but in many cases if we're honest they did start it but it's both of them now um last convention was a goddamn contest to see who could get more generals to sign up on their side and I think the Democrats actually won, which was crazy. You got John Allen, 
Remember that guy who failed in Afghanistan, just like all the others? But anyway, he, he gets in front of, like, Hillary's convention, and he's like, we're going to kill ISIS. And he has, like, one of those Howard Dean fucking breakdowns. I love that shit. Uh, you know? <laughs> and, like, and then the, the Republicans, they've got theirs. Theirs are just usually, like, a little more evangelical, hoping the world ends in Israel types. But, like, they're basically, they fight for the same generals. And, like, so why wouldn't they start fighting for fucking SEAL team leaders who are pardoned of war crimes? And, like, this is where we're going, where the once apolitical active duty force is, is now a pawn in, in, the, in the political game. And since poll after poll for decades now has shown us that the American people trust no public institution of their government um, besides the military, None of them are above 50%. Not Congress, not the courts, not the media, not the presidency. Only the military of all public institutions is above 50%, and, it, and, and it's higher than that. It's like close to 80%. Favorability ratings. Well, the Karl Roves of the world who know how to win a campaign and know how to chop up and divide an electorate, you know what I mean? Like it's a hibachi fucking grill. You know, <laughs> like, it's a fucking, like it's a fucking hoo-hot. You know, the guys like that who do that for a living, they're going to start using the military as a cudgel. They already have. And the logical conclusion is Eddie fucking Gallagher in his dress white with his white shoes, which, by the way, that fucking sucks, um, with a fucking MAGA hat on. Like, that's where this ends. Like, that, that's the logical conclusion. And while we're saying this with some degree of levity, what's the important takeaway for the listener is that... It could happen, and it could happen soon. God help us. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill, and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. And listen to my song. I hope you'll pay attention, I will not be